Amen. Amen. Well, howdy. Welcome. Uh, and this is your first time here. Welcome, welcome. My name is Kevin Bear. I'm the college pastor here at Grace Southwood. And uh, I know many, many people went to the game. Some of you guys made it back. Anyone go to the game and come back this morning? You guys are phenomenal. Um, and and I'm, uh, I'm actually not going to be speaking this week. Uh, Jason Johnson, my lookalike, is right over here. And uh, he got the memo for black and uh, gray. So that was, I was encouraged that he decided to do that. Uh, but uh, Jason works for uh, Christian Alliance for Orphans. And he travels really all over the United States um, working with churches, working with families in, uh, in foster care and adoption. And, and that's, that's his day job. That's what pays the bills. Um, and, uh, but more than that, uh, Jason Johnson is a friend. Um, I, I've gotten more great ideas. I've gotten more uh, deep conversations. I've gotten more just insight into to life and living from Jason um, over our times at Mad Taco, uh, where we get to meet, or at Starbucks, uh, my home away from home. And, uh, and it's been absolutely amazing. And, and uh, last year, Jason got to share with us, got to speak uh, for us, and it was absolutely amazing. And so as we were talking about uh, different moments uh, during the year to bring in some, some guest speakers, um, I floated the idea again to Jason. He's like, hey, I'd be happy to do it. And, uh, and so I'm honored to uh, introduce you guys to and hopefully learn something you probably never thought about before. Because every time I talk with Jason, I, I learn something I never thought about before. Uh, but let me introduce to you uh, Jason Johnson. Wow. Yes. Thanks, man. Hey guys, great to be with you here. Uh, I always like in a room like this, an audience like this, to encourage you uh, to never skip class. And so here's how I'm going to encourage you to do that. It was uh, October 2001, which some of you might not have even been alive then, which is still strange to me. Uh, Strolled into the Harrington building. Anybody have a class in Harrington? Does that building still exist? It was an intercultural, yeah, I know, but... You won't be hissing after you hear this story. Intercultural communications class, hiss, 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 sitting in the back, uh, stadium-style seating, as you're familiar, sitting in the back, leave me alone, don't talk to me, I don't want to be here, kind of thing. In strolls a girl, walks down the side steps, turns, stops, looks at me, walks back up the steps, and sits right next to me. Okay? There's a sea of seats around me. Now, I'm an introvert. Don't bother me. Don't touch me. Don't talk to me. Don't breathe on me. That's kind of me. All these seats around me, this cute girl sits by me, and my natural instinct is to kind of I shift over. Like, really? Like, you're cute, but like, there's all these options, and here you are, right? What I didn't know is, again, this is pre-Facebook, pre-social media. The, the professor at the beginning of the semester says, go online. And if, if you're my age in this room, at that point, it was, go where? Go online to the website, the what? And make a profile of yourself. So you could go on and write about yourself. There were no pictures. But what I didn't know is that when we did that, you could actually click on other students. So this girl had clicked on my name and read what I had written. And so for about a month, she had wondered who this Jason Johnson guy was. She walks into class that day praying about where to sit because that's how spiritual she is. And she just feels like the Lord says, stop, turn around and go sit by that guy. So she does. We strike up a conversation. I uh, walk her out of class. I lie to her. I say, where are you going? She says, I'm going to block her. I say, funny, me too. That's not true. I was going to the MSC, opposite direction. Funny me too, so I walk her to block her. I say, by the way, I don't normally do this. And by don't normally do this, I mean talk to girls, introduce myself to girls, none of that. By the way, I don't normally do this, but my name is Jason. And she says, Jason Johnson, right? And I say, whoa, like, that's a little creepy. 
It's not as creepy today because we can stalk people anytime we want on social media. Super creepy then. She explains the story. I saw your profile. I was looked at it. Walk her to class. Run back to my buddy at the MSC who I'm now late meeting. And I tell him, sorry I'm late. I just met my wife. About eight and a half months later, we were married. So, don't skip class. (laughs) Make sense now? All right. In 2017, this news story hit the news cycle, and when I say the news cycle, I don't just mean the Brian called Station Eagle, I mean CNN, Fox News, New York Times, all the way over across the pond to the BBC, and it was about uh, a scandal that had taken place online, speaking of online, uh, and it revolved around the University of the Harvard uh, University, uh, specifically a guy named William and a bunch of his friends. And so here's the backstory. William was this brilliant high school student in Virginia, the savant at the classics in terms of music and, and literature, just this brilliant kid who made it into Harvard and towards the end of his senior year joined a Facebook group of incoming freshmen into Harvard University. And the objective of this Facebook group was to connect with each other, get to know each other so that when they moved to Harvard, they already had some kind of relationship. So the objective was to know some people and to make some friends and and to not come on campus blind. And you all can appreciate that. And so this Facebook, these Facebook groups pop up and 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 William joins several of them. And one of them in particular takes a hard right turn uh, into um, a, a garbage dump. And what students began to do is post memes online in this Facebook group that are highly, highly inappropriate. I can't even show you examples of them on the screen. Highly inappropriate, highly racist, highly misogynistic, highly sexist. And and it's one of those snowball things that maybe some of you have been caught up in where you just can't stop, like participating, right? And it's funny, and we're just goofing off, but it's not funny, and it's not goofing off. And so William and some of these online friends who have been accepted into Harvard begin to uh, take this to the extreme. And then one day, they all get an email from the admissions office of Harvard, letting them know that their acceptance is now under review based on some of the things that they've seen from some of these students and what they've been doing online and essentially say to them, we are reviewing whether or not your conduct meets the ethical uh, and the maturity standards of what it takes to ultimately be a student at Harvard. And so you can imagine just getting that email. These are students who didn't apply anywhere else. They applied to Harvard. They got into Harvard. It's too late to try to get in anywhere else. And now they're being told that you might not be welcome here. And so a couple weeks pass by before they hear anything else. And they get another email a couple weeks later, which says to them, uh, the, the admissions board has conducted its, its review and you are no longer welcome at Harvard. End of story, non-negotiable. Don't even try to fight it. And so now William and a number of other students are left in the wake of their own shame. And now they have to go around and tell teachers and their parents and different people who uh, are just so thrilled that one of their own is going to Harvard and let them know that, in fact, I can't go anymore. There's a popular podcast that came out recently, and they interview William, and they talk about uh, the shame that he felt in the wake of that, and having to go to teachers and and friends and parents and tell them what happened. And he said, I can't even describe to you the shame that I felt in that moment. 
William tries to get into other schools, and by now it's too late, and that next year he takes a year off of school, and he applies to some other schools, and every school that he applies to has seen the news story and rejects him. So now, left in the wake of his shame, he's, he's continually receiving rejection from people. And so at the end of this podcast, the, the interviewer asks him, William, why did you do it? Why did you do it? Why did you participate? Like, like from the outside looking in and uh, from 2020, you know, looking, looking back, obviously it makes sense. Why would you do that? But, but in the moment, why did you participate in these online forums that were highly inappropriate? And William's answer is shockingly simple. He said, I did it because I just wanted to have friends. That's it. And what the story illustrates is this this massively important and naturally ingrained uh, need for us to feel connected and to feel welcomed and to feel a part of the group to the extent that we will go to great lengths in order to do that. And then what this story also illustrates is the power of shame to disintegrate all of that and to disconnect us from ourself. William says, that's just not who I was. Looking back, I can't believe that it's the same person who was doing that. That's not me. That shame has the power to disintegrate and disconnect us from who we are. It ultimately has the power to disconnect us from others around us. Because can you imagine getting that email and then having to go downstairs and tell your parents, tell your friends, tell your teachers? And William said, I just wanted to shrink back into a hole and die and just disconnect from everyone. And then ultimately, and probably most importantly, shame has the power to disintegrate our relationship with God, where we feel like we can't take anything to him out of fear of shame and rejection and how he's going to respond. And so the story that we're going to walk through this morning really illustrates this in a powerful way. And so I want to set up the context in which Jesus is telling this story. And it's a story that most of us are probably very familiar with, uh, but I want us to take a different angle of it. Most of us hear the story and we've heard it in a certain lens. And to be frank with you, the lens and the lane through which we've heard it is not actually the point of the story. It's a significant point of the story, but it's not the ultimate point of the story. And so we're going to unpack it a little bit more this morning so that we get, it a, we get a fuller understanding of what Jesus is trying to say here. So the context is this. The context is Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. Jesus is, 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 is working on the Sabbath. Jesus is welcoming sinners. He's, he's eating with sinners. He's, he's touching people who have diseases and leprosy and all of these things. And the religious leaders on the outside are looking at him saying, how dare he do that? He's breaking all kinds of laws. How dare he do that? He's breaking the law of God in doing that. And so all these religious people are coming to Jesus saying, you're wrong. And all of these sinners and outcasts are coming to Jesus and saying, we need you. And so this dichotomy of the response of the different types of people to Jesus is the context of this story. And so Jesus launches into some parables and he says, look, religious leaders, Let's say that there's a hundred sheep and one of them runs off. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd runs and chases down that lost sheep. Let's say that a woman has ten coins and she loses one. What does she do? She flips her house upside down in order to find the one lost coin. That's just what a good shepherd does. And then he launches into a story about a father who has two sons. And so let's begin to pick it apart a little bit in Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now to eat with someone in that culture is a statement of acceptance. 
It's saying, I love you and I care for you. Let's sit down and let's be in relationship with each other. And so the moralistic elite people, the religious leaders, were simply outraged. How dare he do that? And so verse 3, Jesus then tells them this parable. And so in response to their attitudes, Jesus is speaking to the religiously, the religious elite, the morally upright. Jesus is speaking to people who think they've got it all together. This is the context in which Jesus is telling the story. And he's going to expose them for who they are. And he's going to say some things to them that nobody has ever said to them. And he's going to say some things to them that are really hard for them to swallow. And he's going to say some things to us through this story that maybe are a little hard for us to swallow as well. See, generally speaking, religiously observant people were, were offended by Jesus. They're the ones that are going around and Jesus is teaching and healing and speaking. And they are just utterly appalled by the things that he's doing. Generally speaking, the religious people in our modern day, we might say church people, were most offended by the teachings of Jesus. And then in contrast, it was the outcasts and the sinners and the irreligious who were most attracted to him. Over and over and over in scripture, we see the religious people sticking an arm out to Jesus and saying, you're wrong, we're offended by you. And we see the sinners and the outcasts and those who are pushed most to the edges of society. They're the ones that are fighting and clawing and scratching their way through crowds just to try to touch him. And it just strikes me as odd that it seems like the tables have turned in our modern culture. In Jesus' context, it was those inside the church who were most offended by by him and those outside the church who were most attracted to him. And frankly, I look around current 2019 church culture, and I find that maybe somewhere along the way we flip the script a little bit. That we are terrified of offending people inside the church, and we are so disconnected from sinners and outcasts and those who are pushed most to the peripherals of our society outside the church that it just makes you wonder, are we even saying the same things that Jesus said? Because when Jesus said certain things, it was us who were offended. And it was them out there who were attracted. And so Jesus is already beginning to push the envelope with these people that he's talking to. And so in verse uh, 11, he continues, Jesus, oh, so here we go. He starts to tell the story of, of, two, of two brothers. It says there was a man who had two sons. And so the two sons represent this. You can see it. The younger brother represents the sinners, those outside. The older brother represents the self-righteous. And it's these people that he's talking to. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So let's pause there. Let's pause there. The younger brother says, Father, I want from you, but I don't want you. I want my inheritance early. That's essentially saying, I want from you what really I should only get when you die. And so just give it to me now. I don't care about you. I want from you, but I don't want you. So here's how inheritance has worked. The older brother got two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger brother in that culture got one-third. So the younger brother comes and says, give me my third now. I don't care about you. I'm taking it, and I'm Running. So a traditional Middle Eastern man would have been expected to drive his son out, disown him forever, but that's not how this father responds. 
Scripture says, so he divided his property between them. Here we see a father who patiently endures a tremendous loss of honor, wealth, and worst of all, he patiently endures the loss of his son. He had every right in the world to disown him and kick him out. But for some reason, this father says, okay, son, take it. So the son takes it and he runs. Not long after that, the younger son got together All he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Let's pause there. You've heard this story taught um, in such a way that it's titled typically, this is the story of the prodigal son. And in fact, it's not the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal there literally means reckless or extravagance. Okay. It's the same word that's used here uh, in squandered. So what we see is not so much uh, a a prodigal son, someone who was reckless, someone who was extravagant in their giving. What we see is a prodigal father. That's the father who is prodigal, that that he extravagantly gives to his son. That he essentially squanders all that he has a rightful ownership of, and he places it in the hands of his son. And an extreme loss of honor to himself. And so that son then takes it and squanders it in extravagant living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Father, give me, give me what I want. I'm going to take it and run. He takes it and he runs. He squanders it in extravagant living. Then he finds himself at the lowest of the low, literally swimming in the pigsty, so desperate that he would eat even what those pigs are eating. When he came to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Even my father's servants live a better life than I do. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So he begins to script what he's going to say to his father. He begins to script how he's going to work his way back into his father's house. Put yourself in William's shoes, up in your bedroom. The spring before you're supposed to go off to uh, Harvard, you get an email from them that says you are no longer accepted here. And now William's got to go downstairs and tell his mom and dad. Can you imagine William sitting in his room scripting out what he's going to say to them? Because this is not going to go well. I'm the fool in this equation. And I've got to go downstairs and I've got to lay out all my foolishness in front of them. And it's going to reflect poorly on them as well. You ever been in a situation where you had to script what you were going to say? Because you knew that no matter what you said and how you said it, it was going to expose you for the fool that you were? And there's just no way around it. This is the position that the younger son is now in. So he goes to, he's scripting it out. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He says, here's what I know. That I am no longer worthy to be your son. And so I'm going to try to work my way back into his home by being a servant and a slave. And so in his mind, the best script he can come up with is a script that has been written by shame. And this is where we see shame enter the picture. I've got to go back and tell my dad everything that I've done. And I'm going to expose myself as the fool. 
And it's going to make him look foolish as well. And so I am not worthy to be called your son. I am not worthy to be in your house. If you would just accept me back as your servant. And the shame is now talking. Shame has now entered itself into the story. And shame is not a new thing. This isn't the inception of shame. The conception of shame begins all the way back in the very beginning of of the human story, quite frankly. If you've ever read the accounts of the Garden of Eden, it says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It doesn't say Adam and his wife were both naked and they weren't cold. Or Adam and his wife were both naked and they weren't, like, embarrassed, right? Adam and his wife were naked and they both weren't, you know, like, giggly, right? None of that. Like, there was no shame. And it's, it's fascinating that the writer of the scriptures would use the word shame. There was no such thing as shame. Can you imagine living in a world where there's no such thing as shame? There's no such thing that, that I know the deepest parts of who I am and, and what it makes me feel is shame. There's none of that. And then sin enters the picture and fractures that perfect union between Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve and their God. And so the story continues in Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, man's natural response to shame being exposed is to hide and to cover themselves. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves because suddenly now they know something is inherently wrong. You know that every day you and I get up and we go through a ritual. And the ritual is this. Every day you and I get up and we go to our closet, we go to our drawers, wherever we keep our on the floor if you're a college student, the, the, the corner of your bedroom, and you, you file through clothes. And every day we all in this room go through a ritual, the same ritual. Every day, you and I decide, what are today's shame coverings going to be? Because prior to sin, there was nakedness and no shame. Now, after the fall, every day, you and I have to get up and decide, what are we going to cover our shame with? Because in God's ideal creation, we would all be running around naked, and it wouldn't be weird at all. But now it would be totally weird and even illegal in a lot of places. (laughs) And so just think of that every time you put clothes on. It is a reminder that we are a shameful people in need of being covered by something that is outside of our capacity to do. And ultimately, we find that solution to be covered in the blood of Jesus, to be redeemed and cleansed by Jesus. But right now, we all live with the need to cover and to hide. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. Is that where we are? The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So shame results in us needing to be covered, and it ultimately results in us running and hiding. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I love that question. You think God knows where we are in our shame? You think there's anywhere that we can hide from God? Like, hey God, you don't want to see this, so I'm just going to hide. I don't think God's ever going like, where are you? Come out, come out, come out. Can't find you. No. But I love how God, in, in a very personal way, in a very personal way, says, hey, where are you? Because it says to us that God is the kind of God that pursues us even in our shame. 
Even in the deepest, darkest things that we want to cover and run and hide from, God says, hey, I know where you are. I'm going to come find you. Like there's nothing that you can do or be or say or have ever done that, that, would, make me put, that, would, that would push me away from you. Because I'm the kind of God that even in the deepest, darkest recesses of your shame, I seek you out and I find you. And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God says, but who told you you were naked? Like where did this come from? Who told you that? Because that's not how I originally created you to be. And so I want to look at three, three aspects of what shame does to us in terms of its power to disintegrate who we are and how we relate to God. The first aspect of how shame disintegrates us is this. It, it, it separates us from ourselves. So think of it this way. Shame is this evil attack on our identity. It attempts to prevent us from using the gifts we've been given. By God, which enable us to flourish as a member of the body of Christ. You see that Adam and Eve, shame enters the picture and it completely disintegrates their understanding of themselves. We used to live in a place where there was no shame and now everything has changed and we feel the need to hide and to cover because we can't fully and truly be ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the body of Christ as ears and eyes and hands and feet. And one of the implications in that is this, is that everybody in this room is some part of the body. And there's no part of the body that could look at the rest of the body and say, "Eh, you don't really need me. Like if you really knew who I was, if you'd really known, if you really knew what I've done, if you really knew all the thoughts that go through my head and the things that I've done in my past, like you wouldn't need me. If I was still a part of the body, I would just be this limp. I would be this cancer that drags you down. And one of the things that shame does is it convinces us that we are not needed by others. And the body of Christ says that's simply not true. That all parts are of equal equal value. And we see this in the son. The son begins to script what he's going to say to his father. Hey, um, I can't be your son anymore. I can't. He's completely lost his own sense of personal identity. I can't be your son anymore. If you really knew how bad I was, I just can't be your son anymore. The second thing that shame does is it separates us from one another. Shame prevents us from being known. We turn away from others for fear of our shame being revealed, intensified, and even reactivated. One of my favorite writers, a guy named Kurt Thompson, puts it this way. It's a little wordy, but follow me. Ready? When we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. When we feel shame... We feel we want to disconnect from others because the closer we are to others, the more our shame is revealed, is what he's saying. However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feeling, ironically, simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Now watch this. I love this. We feel shame, and then we feel shame for feeling shame. Shame disconnects us from one another. It's the son when he says, uh, he says, I can't be a part of this group anymore. I can't be a part of this family anymore. My shame is too great and my shame is too deep. My sin is too ugly. I simply can't be a part of this group anymore. And can you imagine if the father said, forget it, just come on in. Like the son always now living in this place, knowing I, I just don't belong here. If you really knew, then you wouldn't let me be a part. 
So it separates us from ourselves. It separates us from one another. And then finally, it disintegrates our relationship with God. Those parts of us that we feel most broken over and that we keep most hidden are the parts of us that most desperately need to be known by him. And so we see this in the son. He, he's scripting what he's going to say to his father. He says, Father, there's no way that I can ever be right with you again. I just can't imagine a world in which I'm ever right with you again. And it separates us from the father. And what we're going to see in this story is the beautiful God, this, this beautiful aspect of the gospel, which helps us to see that the ugliest parts of who we are, the most shameful parts of who we are, are actually the parts of who we are that Jesus is most attracted to. And it's so counterintuitive to the world around us because we have been taught to hide ugliness, to hide shame, to push down embarrassment because no one wants that. And then Jesus steps in and says, that's exactly what I want. That's exactly why I've come. So we see Jesus continue to tell the story. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. A traditional Middle Eastern man would have never run, would have never pulled up his cloak and exposed his knees and run. The older I get, the the more I understand that. Like, the idea of running, right? I hit 40. Like, I don't want to run. But this father runs to his son. And he breaks all cultural norms in doing that. He sprints out to his son. And you almost get this idea that the son is so far off that the father had to be in the house actually looking for him and watching for him. The father watches him, gets a glimpse of him coming over the hill and sprints out the door to embrace his son. Why? Because God is the kind of God that moves towards hard places and broken people, not away from them. That's what God does. That's what God has always done in Scripture. That God is the kind of God that moves towards us in our brokenness, not away from us. God doesn't sit in the house and see us coming over the hill and go, ah, I can't believe it. No, he says, I can't believe it. And he sprints out the door to to embrace us. We deeply long for connection, to be seen, to be known for who we are without rejection. But we're terrified of the vulnerability that's required to get that. We're terrified of the vulnerability that will be required of us. We see something that we must pay attention to in this story, that God does not leave and shame has no oxygen to breathe in the gospel. There is no room for it. That the father sprints out the door to embrace us. The son said to him, here's his script, Father, I've I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This is the shame talking. The father cuts him off and says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This is the father's way of saying, let's get the most expensive and best meat. Let's get the best clothes, the best jewelry, because my son is home. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So the father stops him and effectively says, I don't want to hear the script. You have always been my son and you will always be my son. And I'm so glad that you're home. So just stop it with that script. There is no room for shame in this house or in this family. Nothing merits the favor of God. We can't earn our way back into right standing with God. God says, bring out the fattened calf. We are having the biggest party that we've ever had because my son is home. Now, meanwhile, Meanwhile, there's the other brother. There's the other brother. 
He's never left. He's always been there. He's watched this whole thing play out. He saw his father give away a third of the inheritance already. Probably questioned why he's doing that. But just remained faithful and quiet in the background. Now he's watching this scene play out where the father is is in a prodigal way, extravagantly squandering and spending on the return of his son. And now the older brother kicks in. He was in the field when he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what's going on. Your brother has come. He replied, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became very angry. Why? Why? Because the religiously elite people are offended by Jesus. They don't like grace. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Here's the father again coming out and saying, son, you please come in. You're a part of this. But he answered his father, look. And that word in the Greek is highly offensive. It's like us talking to our parents saying, stop it. Just listen to me. That's how the, that's how the son is speaking to his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The son is especially upset about the costs. Because here's what's happened now. The younger brother has squandered a third of the estates. Now there's only two thirds left. Which means when it comes time for their inheritance, the older brother is only going to be getting two-thirds of the two-thirds. Make sense? So it's cost him as well. So here's what we see. That grace for the sinner not only costs the father, but it costs us too. That it, it, it makes us sacrifice our desire for justice and fairness and, and unforgiveness. That there's a certain cost associated with it on our end as well. He's especially upset about the cost. He's pleading the case of his own goodness to his father. I have been good. I have been faithful. I have followed all of your orders my entire life. And I haven't even gotten some crummy goat. And you've given him the fattened calf. The father says, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And here's where the story ends. There is no resolution. So you can imagine the religious leaders that Jesus is telling the story to, they're wondering, how does it end? What's the brother do? And Jesus leaves it open-ended. Why? Because he basically drops a bomb in these religious leaders' laps, turns around and walks away and says, deal with it. What are you going to do now? I know you don't like what you just heard, but here's the gospel. The gospel is not only that the younger son in his sin still has a place at the table. The gospel is also the need for the older son to repent of all of the reasons for which he's been good. Father, I have been good to you and I have obeyed you. And I am seriously upset about the cost that I am incurring because of this. This is mine. And so we see the younger brother wants from his father but doesn't want his father. And we see the older brother wants from his father but doesn't want his father. I've obeyed you simply to get from you. And I'm really upset that I'm not going to get everything that I feel like I deserve. So we have two brothers, both with the same problem. The younger brother is the sinner. The older brother is the self-righteous. But both are separated from the father and both are in need of grace. For one, the shame of his rule-breaking 
separated him from his father. For the other, the pride of his rule keeping separated him from his father. Following me? Let's fly through this real quick. So here we see the power of the gospel to reintegrate, to reconnect and to make things that were broken right again. First, with ourselves. The first thing that disintegrates is our understanding of ourselves and the gospel redeems that. Romans chapter 7 says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. I love this. I love that Paul essentially says, I am a far greater sinner than I could have ever imagined. But he is a far greater savior than I could have ever imagined. It's right understanding of himself. I am a sinner in desperate need of grace. And he is an extravagant savior. Full of it in abundance. So it reconnects us with our identity and ourself. Second, it reconnects us with one another. We can live out the one another's together. Our shared need of continual grace unites us. I love, I love this idea that, that we can now live out the one another's. There's 59 one another's in scripture. Love one another. Serve one another. Sacrifice for one another. Bear each other's burdens. We can actually do that. Because we're, re, we're, we're united in our shared need of grace. We don't come to the body and say, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't accept me. No, we're all in this thing together and we bear each other's burdens. And then finally, it reunites us with God, that we can approach his throne with confidence. And I'll leave you with this. Ephesians chapter two says this. You were dead in your your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by works, so that no one can boast. On both sides, You might be the younger son in this room this morning and saying, God, if you really, really knew, and he says to you, it has nothing to do with what you've done or what you can do. You might be the older brother in this room this morning saying, God, I have been faithful. I never went to the parties in high school. I was at youth group three times a week. You owe me. You owe me what I want. And God looks at you and says the same thing. It has nothing to do with what you've done or who you are. It has everything to do with what I've done for you. And so in this room this morning, just like in this story, we see two very different people, both in need of the same repentance. One of them repents of everything that they've done wrong. The other one repents of all the reasons that they've done things right. And I wonder who who you might be in this room this morning. For me, I've grown up in the church my entire life, and I grew up with an older brother mentality. How dare you, God, show grace to those people who have not been nearly as good as me? And maybe that's you this morning in full transparency. And maybe some of you this morning stumbled in here and you had an awful night last night. And you said, God, man, if you only knew what last night looked like for me. And here's what I love about God. He says, I know, I know. And let's pull out the fattened calf and let's celebrate because you are here. Maybe you saw this online. It struck me. 
And we'll just leave this, leave it with you. Shame says to us when we've messed up, I've messed up, my dad's going to kill me. And the gospel says, I've messed up, I need to call my dad. And so I wonder where you are this morning. And our hope and our prayer for you is that you would feel this this pursuit of Jesus towards you. Wherever you are, older brother or younger brother. Let me pray for us. Father, I do ask for wisdom. I ask for courage for us that we would be vulnerable enough to be honest with ourselves where we are and that we would be vulnerable enough to be honest with those around our table, with where we are and what we're struggling with so that we can really get a right understanding of ourselves. We can truly be connected in community to those around us who can help us. And ultimately, and most importantly, we can experience your grace intimately as a father who lavishly and extravagantly as a prodigal spends his grace on us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.